Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Blaze reporting on the recent write-in debate for governor between third-party candidates Howie Hawkins and Larry Sharp. Then our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, brings us part two of his coverage of the November 2nd Get Out the Vote rally at Albany's Labor Temple. Later on, we reach into the archives for part one of a piece Peter Savio recorded two years ago with Albany climate and disability rights activist, Michael Corso. We regret to report that Corso passed away last week, so this is in his memory. After that, Sina Bazilla Hickey talks with local author Nancy Castaldo about how she uses research and writing to take action in response to current issues. Finally, we end with our usual weekly visit with retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson, this week looking at Hurricane Nicole, the heat wave in Europe, our unusually hot weather here, and of course, a forecast for the rest of the week. But first, here are some headlines. Thank you, Bria. Could daylight savings time be coming to an end here in New York? Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara and Senator Joe Griffo introduced legislation to have daylight savings time be the year-round standard for the state. This means the clocks would not go back an hour like they did last weekend. The change depends on whether neighboring states and the federal government agree. The 51st Annual Festival of Nations took place this past Sunday. The event is held every year to support the cultural diversity of the capital region. People were able to participate in various activities, including the Parade of Nations, enjoy native food and dance, along with seeing crafts and entertainment from around the world. On a separate note, uh, Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of Mayhouse also had a celebration this weekend for their 15th anniversary. Blaze? Excellent. A Green Island man is accused of puncturing a black family's tire in a hate crime. Matthew Novak was or is facing a felony mischief or mischief charge. He is at Albany County Jail with no bail. Schenectady plans on shining bright again this holiday season. The city said they will share plans for the second annual Illuminosity holiday lighting promotion next week. It's a partnership between business owners and nonprofits. The town of Postonkill has been awarded $3.32 million in a state fund, I'm sorry, in state funding to provide safe water to residents after the local water was contaminated with PFOA. The grant will cover 60% of the estimated costs associated with creating a second water district covering Algonquin Middle School for the, or I'm sorry, and the surrounding area. I can't read my own braille tonight. State and county officials, however, are still continuing investigating the source of the water contamination. Any pollution, I'm sorry, any polluter could be financially liable the costs and new water system. Bria. Well, one correction, they are still not investigating the source of the water contamination. Thank you much. 
The Times Union reports that Capital Region's secure juvenile detention facility in Colony, where a 19-year-old died last week, has struggled with staffing and safety issues for at least the past year, including losing two executive directors in less than four months. Two state agencies have opened investigations into the death of Capris McBrown, who died October 27th after spending more than two years at the facility while he awaited trial for his alleged role in the fatal shooting of a Schenectady woman. The facility is operated by the Berkshire Farm Center and Services for Youth. And that's it for the headlines. Our first segment has to do with the writing candidates for governor facing off because they were not on the ballot for you to consider because of laws that both the Democratic and the Republican parties agreed upon, forcing third-party candidates off the ballot. Here is my debate recap. Kalen? In a nearly one-hour and 45-minute challenging of the status quo, Libertarian candidate for governor Larry Sharp and Green Party candidate Howie Hawkins faced off in a virtual debate. Opening statements began with Sharp. The biggest issues that we're dealing with in New York State right now are actually people leaving, right? New Yorkers are leaving in droves. There's no tomorrow. If you, it's been happening for over a decade. Literally last month, over eight, I'm sorry, over 6,000 New Yorkers changed their license from New York to Florida. Think about that. Over 6,000. That's 200 a day. They're all leaving like there's no tomorrow. And that's a problem, right? I don't want them to be leaving New York, and they are. Um, how do we fix that? We fix that by dealing with opportunity. We we deal with that. We fix that by dealing with affordability. And we deal with that by dealing with, as you mentioned, safety. All of those. We try to fix opportunity, affordability, and safety. And we do that without just yelling other guy bad, right? It's, that's what we've been doing. The left yells, the right is bad. The right yells, left is bad. What you're going to find today is that we're going to give you actual answers. We're going to tell you what we think and how we can make this work. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. Well, thank you, Christy, for hosting this debate. You know, Larry and I should have been on the Spectrum News debate last week. Uh, we both got double the votes we needed in 2018 to secure a ballot line through this year, 2022. But Andrew Cuomo and the Democrats changed up on us in midstream and tripled the requirements in terms of votes we needed. They added the presidential election and then the signatures we needed to get back on the ballot. So here we are. And by the way, I'm on. My gubernatorial campaign website is hawkinsmatera.org. Look, the first reason I'm asking for a write-in vote is to protest this exclusionary ballot access law that kept the Greens and the Libertarians off the ballot. This is the first time since 1946 and the only other time since 1891 when they first introduced uh, state-issued secret ballots that only the Democrat and Republican are on the ballot. People, voters have been denied all their choices. So I'm asking for your vote for an inclusive multi-party democracy. And being the Green Party candidate, of course, I'm appealing to socialists and liberals and progressive populists to vote for the Greens for the progressive agenda that the Democrats talk about. There are lots of bills in the legislature, but they don't pass them. So a vote for us is a vote for a Green New Deal for 100% clean energy and zero emissions in 10 years. A program that my running mate and I, my running mate Gloria Materia, first campaigned for in 2010 
And here we are, and little's being done about the climate crisis. It's a vote for an economic bill of rights. So everybody has an opportunity, a right to a living wage job, an income above poverty, affordable housing, comprehensive health care, and lifelong public education from child care through college. And finally, it's a vote for the inclusive democracy, not just fair ballot access, but we want ranked choice voting for statewide offices, including senators and president. That ends a spoiler problem that people face in the winner take all system and for proportional representation in the legislature through ranked choice voting in multi-member districts. That eliminates gerrymandering. Right now, almost all of our districts are non-competitive one-party districts. We know who's going to win before the election happens. It's a farce. So we need these changes to really have an inclusive democracy. So those are good reasons to write in Howie Hawkins and Gloria Matera. Both Sharp and Hawkins were asked how they can handle the narrative they cannot make an impact politically on the race. First, we hear from Larry, then Howie. The reality of it is every single bad thing you're unhappy about, <clears throat> excuse me, everything you don't like, came because of the two parties. It all came because of Democrats and Republicans. They're the ones who made everything happen. If you're unhappy about X or unhappy about Y, it's because of Democrats and Republicans. They have been the ones to do it. How's your voting got it so far? How's it worked out for you, right? Remember something. When, it, when you look at someone like, say, uh, Bush in 2000, Bush got us Obama. Obama got us Trump. Trump got us Biden. Who's winning? Nobody's winning. We're fighting to say, hey, this time we'll stop it. But then it just delays your pain for four years or eight years. Well, I say to people that uh, look at that lesser evil problem, it's real. The center left vote for us gets split and a lot of people settle for the Democrats, even though they support our platform. And when you do that, you silence yourself. You get lost in the sauce. You know, if you want a uh, universal health care system with a single public payer, the New York Health Act, which Hochul is opposed to, and you vote for her because she's the lesser evil, you just voted against what you want. You voted against yourself. You got lost in the sauce. Your vote is your voice. And if you want to be heard, vote for what you want and make the politicians come to you. Again, starting with Sharp, here are their closing statements. We have been robbed. That's what we have. We've been robbed. We've been robbed of choice. We've been robbed of the opportunity to make change. We have been robbed by our own state. We are being robbed daily. We are being robbed of our freedom, robbed of our money, robbed of our opportunity. We are being robbed. So we have to change that. How can we change that? Well, Larry, this time there's a chance that this could happen or this could happen. No, that's all a lie. Because no matter who wins, the Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter, they give us the same thing. To be forward, unless a miracle happens, Kathy Hochul's gonna win again. Why? Because the Republicans made sure to throw off people like me and Howie, we were the only types of people who could have made an, uh, uh, an actual coalition against the establishment to beat her. That was the only chance, was it a coalition against the establishment. And when you get rid of all third parties, there can be no coalition. So the establishment consistently wins. We have to stop that without question. The Democrats were the first ones who beat us up. And then after that, the Republicans agreed. And then this year, the Democrats sued Howie off and the Republicans sued me off the ballot. They took your taxpayer dollars, they took your donations, and they took that and took us to court and they threw us off the ballot. They used your money literally to take away your choice. When they take away your choice, they take away your voice. 
Whatever you do, whether you prefer what Howie said or what I said, don't you dare vote for a Democrat or Republican if you're a New Yorker. If you do, shame on you. Let me say it again. If you do, shame on you. You are literally being, you, you literally have Stockholm syndrome. You are <laughs> allowing your oppressor to actually say, oh no, uh, uh, I love my oppressor. No, don't you dare do that. If you prefer me, write in Larry Sharp November 8th. If you prefer Howie, write in Howie Hawkins November 8th. Don't you dare do anything else. Because if we actually get 130,000 votes, either one of us, there will be an independent party in New York State. Now, I know people say all the time, wait a minute, Larry, there are actually other parties. They're all parasite parties. They're not real. The only parties that actually run candidates and don't just piggyback up someone else, the Green Party, Libertarian Party. And that's why you see us here. That's it. You must, without question, you must, if you care about your state, if you care about freedom, if you care about having choice, you must write in either Larry Sharp or Howie Hawkins, if you're a New Yorker, November 8th, no matter what. Everything else is a lie. Don't believe it. They are lying to you. You have Stockholm Syndrome. Well, once again, I want to thank uh, Chrissy for hosting this and Peter for being a moderator and Larry for agreeing to this. I emailed him a couple of weeks ago and said, we should do a debate because the Hochul Zeldin debate is going to be not very enlightening for the voters. And, you know, we finally got it together and I'm glad we did. Um, Larry mentioned, uh, you know, these government lawyers for the Board of Education elections, uh, you know, arguing for the law that made it impossible for the real independent parties to be on the ballot. And it's worse than that. The judges, the, the district court judge made a decision that got the facts and the law wrong. And our lawyers, you know, corrected him in their briefs to the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. And a three-person bench from that, uh, or panel from that court, issued an insulting, disrespectful two-sentence decision. Said, you know, we're affirming the uh, district court. So we're appealing, it's called in banc, you, you get the whole court long shot, but we're fighting there and we're gonna fight for legislation. But, you know, you gotta vote for one of us just as a vote of protest to this, you know, terrible system they set up where you got two corporate funded candidates uh, that really don't have solutions and their whole, you know, election campaign is about saying how bad the other candidate is. Um, and if you, as I said before, if you vote for the lesser evil who doesn't support what you want, you're voting against yourself. You get lost in the sauce because the things you want, I use the example of single payer health care, and that's what you want, and you don't vote for the candidate that supports it, you're voting against it because Holko's against it, Selden's against it. So, you know, a right and vote for me and Gloria Matera is a vote for a Green New Deal and Economic Bill of Rights. And probably the most important issue, an inclusive multi-party democracy. So the way you write in is you go down that gubernatorial column to the bottom and there's a write-in box. And in my case, you write in Howie Hawkins and Gloria Matera, my running mate for Lieutenant Governor, M-A-T-T-E-R-A, and keep it within the box or it won't count. And, you know, make yourself heard. Um, your vote is your voice. So speak up and make the politicians come to you. This is Blaze Bryant reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks, Blaze, for that report on the debate between the two third-party write-in gubernatorial candidates, Green Party candidate Howie Hawkins and Libertarian candidate Larry Sharp. 
The audio is courtesy of the YouTube channel of Chrissy Mayer, who co-moderated the debate with Peter Lavinia. For a link to the full debate video, see the segment's description on our website. And next, we have another election-related story. On November 2nd, our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, attended a get-out-the-vote rally at the Albany Labor Temple in Albany. In this segment, Willie interviews Sharon V. De Silva, PEF's vice president, and Gustavo Santos, PEF's board representative, about the event. And just to note, PEF is a labor union. Yo, this is Willie Terry, your Roman labor correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk Network. And I'm here today at the uh, Labor Temple in Albany, New York, where they are having a big rally uh, called Get Out to Vote Rally. There's a lot of union representation here today, and I think they're expecting Captain Hochul, so uh, they haven't started yet. And I have as my guest... Gustavo Santos. And Gustavo, you and... I'm a PEF member. I'm an executive board uh, 490 for PEF. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on this uh, upcoming election? Why do you think it's so important? Well, it's a very important election because we have a lot, a lot to lose in terms of uh, working, working people. Um, we have um, a lot of issues uh, that are important to be addressed in uh, the state of New York. And, uh, and I think the governor, the governor definitely is doing a great job in terms of uh, making sure that the issues of labor uh, are being addressed, especially with uh, tier five and six. Okay. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. And I have also have as my guest. Sharon De Silva. How you doing, Sharon? Hi, how are you, really? Pleasure to see you. All right. And Sharon, give me your thoughts on this rally right here today. Oh, this rally was wonderful, wonderful. We had so many labor representatives here, many labor leaders, members from SEIU, from PEF, where I'm from, vice president. Um, we have PEF members, we have SEIU. Um, AFL-CIO President Mario Salento was here, and it was just wonderful to see so much unity and diversity um, represented here today. And you being a union officer, I do have one another question for you. Yes. Now, we've been trying to get the PRO Act passed for quite a while. Yes, we have. And do you think... Uh, any of these parties will pass this PRO Act if they get back? Well, we've been pushing for it. We've been um, mm -hmm. announcing it to our members, mm -hmm. and not just PEF, but many unions throughout the state, throughout the country, uh, because this is a federal act that's important for um, labor and the continued um, strength of labor in America. So it's really important for the news to get out there to all of the members to help um, support their federal uh, legislators to make sure that the PRO Act is passed. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, Governor Hochul, she's uh, high, high up on diversity. You know, she even got Al Anthony Delgado to be her lieutenant governor. You know, how do you think about that? Well, I think it's wonderful. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is not just three letters, right? They're act it, it actually represents three words. And it's important because this country is moving in a direction where we need to show more diversity, equity, and inclusion in the public sector, the private sector, in our communities, in our courtrooms, everywhere we turn. We need to show that this is a diverse state and a diverse country, and we need to continue to support any type of effort that supports uh, diversity 
diversity and, and inclusion. We need to support. We need to show diversity in race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation, and age, and intellectual ability. Everywhere we turn, we want to see diversity. That's diversity makes this country strong. It has been from the beginning of time, and it will continue to do so. And, and Gustavo, uh, the court, which is kind of, they said, very right wing, the Supreme Court. And, and then in the news recently, they're saying that they're getting ready to uh, get rid of affirmative action. What impact would that have on uh, people of color if they get rid of affirmative action? It certainly will because I'm an affirmative action kid. I was part of the EOP program when I went to SUNY Albany. And it certainly opened up a lot of doors for myself and for my family and a lot of working class people. Uh, and uh, affirmative action should stay because um, it's, it's not done in terms of uh, the civil rights movement. It's going to be here forever and it's, it's not ending and it's not going to end today or tomorrow. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of our civil rights and, and making sure that people of color get an opportunity to go to get into this university to become uh, a success. Like, I'm a, like I am, you are, and uh, Sharon is these days. All right. Yes, thank you. And Sharon, uh, what do you think about that uh, from the action? I think it would I think it would be a major injustice. I think people need to understand why affirmative action was even important to begin with, right? We didn't we, we didn't leave Africa. We were stolen and we were brought here as slaves. So, we didn't have a choice. And the the type of of destruction that it caused and slavery caused to families, breaking families up. I'm from Trinidad. Gustavo is from Honduras and they destroyed. Slavery destroyed so many lives. Brought to America, came to America and fighting for basic things that everybody should have, you know, and affirmative action is the reason why I'm standing here speaking with you today. I was an EOP educational opportunity um, student, just like many other students throughout New York State. And if it wasn't for EOP, I wouldn't be standing here because my family couldn't afford it. There are individuals born, born right here in America that can't afford to go to school. EOP gave us that opportunity. I have four degrees, a double major, a master's, and a law degree because of affirmative action. And I am here standing, representing PEF, representing minorities, and representing women to say yes with the right opportunity, which is affirmative action. Affirmative action is about opportunity, opportunity that we deserve because black people were lynched in this country to learn how, trying to learn how to read and write. Can you imagine being lynched? trying to learn how to read and write. So how can you tell me affirmative action is not needed? Of course it's needed. What other race was lynched trying to learn to read and write? We deserve to be in those universities and colleges just like any other race does. And affirmative action cannot be destroyed. And what the, what the uh, right wing say is that, hey, we wasn't here when that happened. You know, we wasn't born. But we suffered as a result of what happened to our ancestors. We are descendants. And if you go on Netflix, you will see a show called Descendant. It's a documentary about the last slave ship that was brought to, brought to America um, called the Clotilde. So take a look at that documentary and it will teach you about our history, about the last slave ship illegally brought to America and tell me that those individuals living there doesn't deserve some kind of reparation for the, for the struggles that they went through. Okay, Sharon, thank you for that perspective. Thank you. Sharon.
and Gustavo. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Willie. From our next speaker, and we printed hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of on labor and I votes. Let's remind everybody: labor members vote, union members vote, and they vote because what you do in office matters. So as Democrats, we're going to deliver for those union members each and every day. Now let's bring up the voice of the largest number of labor union members, not in just this state, but this country. Our New York State AFL-CIO President, Mario Salento. for that report. Remember that this Tuesday, November 8th, is the last day to vote. For details on polling locations and times, check with your local Board of Elections. Our next piece is in memory of Michael Corso, a towering figure in New York State's public sector and passionate disability rights advocate and philanthropist who passed away on October 29th. Corso shared compelling stories in venues throughout the region and on the Moth radio program. Two years ago, Peter Savio talked with Michael about his time working on the Public Service Commission and how the work related to economic, social, and environmental justice. As a tribute to Michael Corso, here's part one of their 2020 interview. Here we go. 
Welcome to Climate Matters. This is the first podcast and recording of 2020, and we are very pleased to have an old friend, uh, Michael Corso, here, and uh, really pleased to have you, Michael. How are you? Great, Pete. Thanks, and really looking forward to working with you here on the show. Absolutely, absolutely. So Michael has a long history of being a thought leader at the Department of Public Service. For those who are not aware, the Department of Public Service uh, is the support arm for the Public Service Commission here in New York. And as a thought leader, Michael has been involved in some of the most significant actions of the commission over the last several decades. And I'll just put a couple out there and and, uh, we'll start jumping into it. Uh, So Michael's been involved in uh, electric deregulation uh, back in the 90s. Michael's been involved very deeply in consumer protection and also in energy efficiency programs, uh, particularly with relation to low-income customers. And that last one is where we'll be spending a lot of our time here because energy efficiency is so intrinsically, intrinsically linked to climate. So, uh, Michael, before we get into uh, low-income energy efficiency or the rest, can you flesh out the background beyond what what I just laid out? Sure. The low-income energy efficiency program, which was nicknamed ULEAP. ULEAP? That's because the first word is the letter U for utility. So what we did at the PSC is we developed a program where we were going to spend $10 million a year for three years for this pilot program, a total of $30 million. And this was approved by the commission in a case 89M124. So that's the 124th case of 1989. That's how they're cataloged. And uh, the implementation actually happened in 1990. Um, part of the commission's order was to develop a cooperative planning process with all the parties, the utilities, consumer advocates, Um, external parties that conduct energy efficiency and alike. And uh, we developed a program over a six-month period, and it got implemented, and it was an incredibly successful program. So in terms of the implementation, so for for folks who might be coming at it from, I'm a customer, or folks who might be coming at it from the perspective of what, what kind of technology or efficiency action actually happens out there. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So the reason for the focus on low income is basically obvious, but I'll just say it for those who aren't following yet. The low income have the least money, the least amount of opportunity to provide themselves with energy efficiency in their homes. So the program was to develop a way to use grants and show savings beyond the cost. So we spent $10 million a year and we saved $12 million a year. So the program was net positive and there was a cash flow value to utility customers who were funding the pilot as well as the utility because it helped customers be able to pay better than they would have otherwise. As I like to say, they were providing heat for the pigeons and (laughs) buttoning up their homes, and and especially in the roof area where the greatest loss is, we sealed that up, buttoned that up, and it made a huge difference. The biggest thing that happened was to secure energy efficiency 
analysis where you can do an audit of the home, develop a plan for how much money needs to be spent on what measures, and then you put together a cost-effective uh, program for that home, and each home is different. Right, right. And so when you were talking about the impetus, Michael, the, the impetus, you know, recognizing uh, the affordability issue with uh, the, the low-income customers that take advantage of it, were, were there also factors in terms of the, the fraction of their costs associated with energy and utility bills versus a middle-income or upper-income customer? So their income compared to their energy burden? Yeah, that gets very uh, complex very quickly when you start looking at mass numbers of customers and energy costs versus energy savings. But the bottom line really is that there were some values that the low-income consumers achieved better than middle and higher income because of payment ability or payment inability. So when you save money in a home where people have a hard time affording their energy costs, you reduce the price, sorry, you reduce the cost to that customer so they can actually pay more percentage of their bill, lowering terminations and reconnections, as well as providing comfort. So the, the, you get that with middle and higher income families, but they don't have the sense of difficulty paying their bill. Mm. And that difficulty has a huge cost to the ratepayer because if you don't pay your bill, the ratepayers pick up what you don't pay. And that becomes a very slippery slope very quickly on how much customers, general body of customers, has to pay for the losses that go to the utility. The utility can't really absorb that much in costs, it is designed, the system, to have people be able to pay mm. and l as little debt as possible so that debt doesn't grow and then add interest to pay off that debt, which raises rates. Yep, yep. So this, uh, this initial pilot in 89 has uh, come a long way since then. And I guess what I would ask you to do is to connect the dots from 89 to today when so much of the discussion around climate is associated with equity issues and environmental justice issues, it, it strikes me that the utility low income program or ULEAP was sort of a trailblazer. Where did it go after that trailblazing? Did, did others follow? Did the commission uh, continue to invest? Yes. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> I, yes, and, and quite well, I have to say. The, uh, the pilot outcome was very strong, um, very successful. Um, we made goals six months into a year. So we, we achieved where we were trying to go in a, in, in a six-month period instead of a year, and mm. everything else was, quote-unquote, gravy off the goals. But in, in essence, the value proposition was that we were, we were helping – all ends of the spectrum. Everybody was getting a value from it. The ratepayer, but in general, the utility, and especially, of course, the low-income customer that could not afford their bills now can afford it better. Even if they could pay just the same as they did before, they've lowered the ceiling, the total cost, and the negative uh, number is what goes down in terms of the cost in total. So it is not only been a great, strong program, but when I retired... Um, just about two years ago in 2018, 
um, we were spending upwards of $200 million across the state on just low-income energy efficiency. Mm, mm. And in addition to the spending, as you said earlier, the, the notion is that it's not simply saving energy. It, it brings multiple benefits, and it's, it's uh, again, just stitching that connection back to climate change. Some uh, serious climate change analysts uh, in seeking mitigation opportunities are using the term uh, called multi-solving. So you don't simply solve for the utilities interests or concerns in terms of uncollectibles or simply in terms of the end use customer, but you can you can actually get a win-win-win. And that's what I think you deserve to be quite proud of in helping to lead that effort. Well, thank you for the Compliment, of course, it's always appreciated, especially when you get a compliment 30 years later. Um, <laughs> but I do appreciate, uh, Pete, because I, I knew you way back then and earlier um, when we were struggling generally as a body of um, regulators. We tried really hard to um, develop the program so it would be a win-win-win so we could actually achieve a goal, which was to have energy efficiency built in to our way of life. Excellent. Excellent. We have been speaking with uh, Michael Corso, uh, thought leader at the Department of Public Service and at the Public Service Commission here in New York about uh, low-income energy efficiency and a range of other issues. We will continue the conversation uh, when we join you next time on Climate Matters. So, Michael, great to have you. Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful. Thank you. This archival segment of a 2020 interview by Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Peter Savio is, in is played in memory of Michael Corso. Hear part two of the interview on our next program. Thank you to Michael for a life well lived, and we send our condolences to his friends, colleagues, and of course, family. We turn our attention to the arts and hear from local author Nancy Castaldo, who spoke with Sina Bazila Hickey about how she uses her research and writing as action to create a difference with her books. Award-winning author Nancy Castaldo recently visited Nature Lab to spend an afternoon with the Water Justice Lab fellows. She's worked on books about our planet for over 20 years from New York's Hudson Valley. She joins me now to tell us more. Welcome, Nancy Castaldo. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Your books incorporate a lot of research into many different issues, primarily looking at the environment and our world or planet. Can you talk about how you got to do this work and your background? Well, my background uh, is basically comes out of a science background. My undergraduate degree, I, I double majored in biology and chemistry, um, knowing that I wanted to somehow go into something in the environment, but I also took photography classes. And I was the um, president of the science club and also the co-editor of the literary magazine. And then senior year, I was able to do a fabulous internship at Audubon magazine. And I combined all of those interests into that internship. Uh, and the internship was supposed to be for six months. It stretched into a year. They asked me to come back. And uh, and I, I grew to really love uh, that end of the work. So I became a, an environmental educator doing uh, stints at a nature center in upstate New York and, and other 
environmental education programs um, around and writing. Uh, and then it led to a lot of magazine work and then into books. So that's a brief summary. <laughs> and this year alone, you had three books come out. But before we get to that, I just want to quickly give a teaser to the book that you're working on, which is why you were at Nature Lab. What is the idea that you're working on? So the books that we'll discuss in a little bit were all researched primarily before the pandemic. But during the pandemic, I didn't travel and I was working at home. And I, I really came back to um, a topic that's always been um, something that I've been interested in and has been close to my heart, and that's the Hudson River. Uh, I wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called River Wild, which uh, talked about rivers all over the world, and it was an activity book. And um, I decided to put together a proposal for a book focused on our own local river. And I've lived in the Hudson River Valley my entire life. So it it runs through my veins, so to speak. Um, and I thought it was a, um, a, a topic that needed revisiting for me. So it was my pandemic book that has stretched uh, into uh, working on now and, and completing soon. So water is definitely a thread that you repeatedly visit. And the book, When the World Runs Dry, Earth's Water in Crisis, can you tell us a bit more? So I had written a book previously called uh, The Story of Seeds, which focused on food security. And when I was working on that, I realized um, how many issues in agriculture were tied to water issues, how food security and water issues really go hand in hand. And then I started to explore water issues. Uh, and, you know, if we really think about it, we see stories in the news every day. Either they're about water quality or water quantity. And I wanted to delve in that a little bit more and find out what is the sta state of water um, in the world right now? And how is that changing? How is that connected to, to other things like climate change and food security um, and our own health? So um, when the world runs dry really covers the gamut um, from everything from um, Flint, Michigan's lead water crisis to um, the flooding and the um, the loss of of islands connected to Louisiana from climate change and, and sea water rise to locally uh, near me, Husik and their water crisis with PFAS. So it really stretched the spectrum of what we're facing and it caused by energy consumption, energy use, energy production, um, manufacturing, to climate change. So the closest location that you just mentioned was Husik and the, and the PFAS, something that we've reported on numerous times on our program. Uh, what, who did you speak to? What, um, how did you approach that story? Well, uh, I was fortunate enough, believe it or not, to be in Flint, Michigan, when I connected with Judith Ank. And um, she was a, a major factor in that. Um, it's funny that, you know, you travel all the way, I traveled all the way to Michigan to be able to connect with, with our local person here. Um, but we, we got chatting a lot more there. I was there uh, at, the, at the time to really delve into the Flint water crisis. Um, and we, we kind of got 
into that side track. So then I visited Husik after that and spoke to residents and, uh, and delved into it a little bit more detail. So that is um, a chapter in the book that's focused, of course, on water quality um, and how, how that's being challenged at this point in many, many places with Husik being a case study for that topic. Another book that was released this year is The Wolves and Moose of Isle Royale, Restoring an Island Ecosystem. And looking at the relationship between these two animals and how it's been disrupted and human intervention is trying to restore it. How did you research this and and, um, give us a little bit more of an idea of what the book's about? This is, you know, quite different from the water book, but um, uh, along the same lines of how um, how things are changing in our world, how scientists uh, make an impact, how we can all make an impact, and a relationship that actually, for me, started when I was in college and studied this predator-prey relationship between wolves and moose, which is the uh, the study that's been going on about these these two critters. Uh, is the the longest predator prey study in the world. When I studied it in college, it was fascinating. I followed the story after that and found so many things that have been going on since then. Um, The lack of wolves and how the island ecosystem had changed so dramatically and now the need to bring in wolves. Um, Similarly to to Yellowstone's reintroduction of wolves and how the wolves have have impacted uh, the the Yellowstone ecosystem now. So it was a fascinating topic to explore and uh, and dive into and go there and actually interview the the scientists that I studied, you know, back in college years ago. Wolves were in an, another book that I wrote uh, called Back from the Brink. Um, so it's it's again a relationship that I've kind of continued in my books. I tend to tend to do that. We don't leave our mm-hmm. research and we we kind of get attached to different topics when we're writing. It is an interesting topic as our society, humans tend to have domesticated animals and that creates a lot of contention and many different countries. I know in Switzerland, I know people who don't like the wolves and of course in Wyoming and very, very interesting. Before we run out of time, I want to get to the book that on the day of our interview, November 1st, came out, Buildings That Breathe. There it is. It's here. It's finally here. Um, So yeah, this book is releasing today. It's the launch day. It's very exciting for me, of course, to to have see it in in its final form. Um, So this book really began with with me in Italy, uh, learning about uh, Bosco Verticale, which is a what we like to refer to as a tree scraper instead of a, a skyscraper a tree scraper. So it's a, it's, it's two towers that were built by Stefano Boere, designed by him um, in the city of Milan. And they have, they're covered by trees. And it's just fascinating because he has constructed these towers, not with terraces that just hold trees, that these trees are built into um, their special planters. It's a green building and they actually know um, the quantity of oxygen that they're releasing and the pollutants that are being sucked out of the atmosphere. So um, it's a, a just, a, I think, a wonderful way to think about 
how we can change our landscape and how we can make our green centers, uh, our cities into green centers that can combat the heat island effect, um, that can help climate change, that can make residents more healthy. Um, there's just so many good positive things and, um, and there's a lot of folks out there that are working to do this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. And thanks to Sina Bazila-Hickey for that interview with local environmentally focused author, Nancy Castaldo. Full information about the author and her 24 books so far can be found at her website, Nancy Castaldo, C-A-S-T-A-L-D-O dot com. Joining us now is retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson to talk about the frankly amazing weather we've had so far in November, as well as some bad news uh, coming down the pike uh, as we have Hurricane Nicole developing and much more. Hey, Hugh, hope you had a good week. I did. How about yourself, please? Pretty good, thanks. Cannot complain. And how could you when it's November 5th and 6th and you're able to spend some time on a weekend outside on patio furniture and be comfortable. Yes, indeed. Well, we, we hit a record high on, on Saturday at 76 degrees, our third warmest November day in history. But what was even more amazing, Blaze, is what happened Sunday. It wasn't as warm, granted, but our right. low was 67. And that smashed. The, that was our by five degrees, our warmest overnight low ever for November by five degrees uh they, you know blew away the record of 62 set in 1938 and we set our mean or warmest mean temperature of 69.5 even though the high only got to 72 but it just stayed really warm all day so that was pretty amazing very amazing in my book and the first six days of november by far the warmest ever in albany's history 60.6 degrees 15.9 above normal the closest is from 1994 is about four degrees cooler. So yes, we're off to a, off to a very warm and uh, start to the month of November. Hi, Hugh. Bria here. Did we hit 70 yeah, I degrees? Did. I was hearing that if we had four days in a row of 70 degrees, it would match like only three other times it's happened. Unfortunately, officially, we did not. We hit 69. On my thermometer, I did hit it. I've hit four days in a row. I hit 71, but officially at the airport, no. I was surprised because it was just so sunny today. It was like a brilliant, the sky was blue, and uh, I thought they would have hit 70, but no, it's just one of those things that just didn't quite make it. Hugh, I got to ask a follow-up question here. Why do we go by the airport? Because as I was told many times in in my broadcast news classes, Never give the temperature at the airport because nobody lives at the airport. Well, the reason why we do, Blaze, is because that's the place where if you're going to have a, a weather observation, there's no better place to have it than at the airport. You're absolutely right. And it doesn't, it's not always representative of the area, but that's where you have continuous uh, weather observations because of aviation, because, you know, your flight's flying well, and you, they absolutely critically depend on all elements of, of weather. So that's why airports are done like national airport or reagan airport down in dc everyone knows that's not representative 
Um, our airport's not bad, but it's it, it, you know it, it's a little bit outside the city. But that's just because that's where the aviation uh, they, they need that information for aviation. So, Hugh, we're not the only place that's that's been hot these days. What's happening in Europe? Well, Europe actually it, it preceded our warm up by about a week. The last week of October was incredibly warm. Temperatures soaring to the 60s in Switzerland and up to Sweden, and I think even Norway. A place called, and I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, Marone de la Frontera in Spain. I don't know Spanish very well, but this spot in Spain, I think southern Spain, hit 95, I kid you not, last week. 95 degrees, way above normal. And the scary thing about Europe, and this is a climate change signal, they have warmed nine-tenths of a degree per decade since 1991. So they're actually warming faster than most of the rest of the world, with the exception of the Arctic. So something's going on in Europe that it's just, I mean, it's been amazingly, you know, the summer, we had a really hot summer. We've had many hot summers in Europe, anomalously hot summers, and now this very warm fall. And so that ridge came into our ridge developed uh, this week, and it will be changing, yes. Which means Europe has, yeah, which means Europe is uh, in temperature a 0.3 degree increase. And we've yeah. got more on the horizon here. Hugh Johnson joining me, Blaze Bryant, and Bria Barthel on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. What's the latest with tropical system or storm? Nicole, I heard on a CBS News report a few hours before we had this chat here, it's supposed to make landfall in Florida Wednesday? That, that Wednesday or Thursday. It might actually be early Thursday, but yeah, late Wednesday, early Thursday. It's actually a subtropical. It is our 14th named storm of the year, which puts it seven behind last year. But we, we called up because there for a while we were way behind last year. But it's subtropical, meaning that it's not completely encased into a warm core low yet but it will likely do so as it intensifies as it gets into even warmer water as it approaches Florida. But yes, it is expected to, it's moving Northwest now about nine miles an hour. It will bend a little bit more to the Southwest and it looks like it's going to hit the Fort Lauderdale area somewhere near there uh, late Wednesday night, Thursday as either a strong tropical storm or a low end hurricane. Now it will not have a devastating effect of Ian. It will not have the storm surge, but it could have lots of, rain it's a, 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 expected to be a large storm and a lot of wind well winds but near hurricane force so it'll probably be a lot of power outages flooding there won't be the horrible st- um, storm surge that ian has thank goodness and then from there it's going to work through florida into the gulf and back over the atlantic and it will likely impact our weather in some way or form this weekend the question is is a strong cold front going to sweep it out to sea or is it going to interact with it that we're going to get really heavy rain from it? That remains to be seen, but at least there's a threat of some rain with it, possibly heavy, as we go into like uh, late Friday and early Saturday, it looks like right now. And then behind that storm, look out, much colder air, which is finally building in Canada, is coming down to get us. So before the cold air comes, we've, we've had all this very hot air. I know that the UN Secretary General said at the climate summit, we're in the fight of our lives and we're losing and that we're close to the tipping point of not being able to save things. Are your thought, What are your thoughts on that? It's probably and sadly, but true. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I funny, I read a New York Times article that was uh, seemed too optimistic, saying that things are looking better for climate change. But um, I, 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 my own personal feeling is we're, we're seeing too much weird stuff going on, and I lean towards. I mean, I don't think it's going to happen. In, in my opinion, it's not going to happen in the next couple of years, but certainly in the next couple of decades. And not to get political, but if, if we're political tide changes tomorrow and the next two years, that could set things back because we, we know which each, which where each party stands on climate change. We don't have to go there. But, you know, it's things like that that will, will, will stall us from doing more than we, we need to do to really reverse things. Because I've always said all along, the big problem besides putting too much CO2 in the atmosphere is trying to get rid of it. Good luck getting rid of it. It has a half-life of, of thousands of years. So it's not going to go anywhere fast once you put it into the atmosphere. So I think we got, we're, we're in trouble. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I just heard former Vice President Al Gore at a conference in Egypt basically saying the same thing that you just did. And, well, yeah. there could be a sea change politically tomorrow. There could be, yeah. may not be. But one thing we do know for crossed. certain is that, uh, yeah, one thing we know for certain is that the weather is going to change. So why don't we yeah. go with the certainty of a Hugh Johnson forecast? Okay, again, so cool air tonight. This isn't the Arctic air. This is more of a normal Canadian air mass moving in. It will drop to the upper 30s tomorrow, so you'll, you'll need coats again and only get the lower 50s gusty wind. There should, oh, by the way, there's an eclipse tonight, solar lunar eclipse that should be visible right before dawn. It's the last one we'll see for five years, so something to think about this, tomorrow morning. Um, but then tomorrow, it looks like a great day Wednesday with near seasonable temperatures, although very cold start in the 20s, so it's going to be really cold. But this isn't the Arctic air yet. Then it warms up again to the 60s. We'll watch for that moisture from the cold coming up and bringing us some rain. And then behind that, on the weekend, look out. Here comes the gales of November. comes flashing. And we'll see that on Sunday. Sunday will be a – and we might even see our first flurries of the year on Sunday and or Monday. So, yeah, we're yeah. going to pay back a little bit for this. Yeah, you know, it's mid-November. It's, it's hard to, to not have that happen. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I know that places that are in droughts would love to hear that they'll have snow for meltwater. That's true. But again, we're not looking for any accumulating snow. That's not on the cards, thank goodness. I don't see that in the next week to 10 days anyway. So we're good there. <laughs> Very good, Hugh. Flat out of time. Hugh Johnson, retired National Weather Service meteorologist. Have a great week, Hugh. We'll catch up with you next week. You too, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You as well. That's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the multi-talented Kaylin McPherson, who is also a regular co-host on another show, another day of the week. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Others contributing to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Sina Bazila Hickey, Willie Terry, and Peter Salvio. Please consider joining us as a volunteer. We appreciate your, your listening. Uh, tune in. Each week, weekday, 7 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. 
Wash. All episodes and individual stories are available on demand at that website and on your favorite podcast pr- platform. That's it for now. Catch us next next day. <laughs>